Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. What? Oh, you were worried I was going to light up a cigarette. Well... I've got really good news for you. It's not a real cigarette. And in case you're worried I was gonna start a fire, this Zippo lighter has not had fuel in years. So that would have been a miracle. But it is amazing how smoking cigarettes was normal everywhere in society until it wasn't anymore. I clearly remember watching reporters, newscasters, sit there and over a lit cigarette discuss politics with ambassadors and senators. Smoking was normal until we realized, hey, this is bad for you, and it started to get less and less common in the culture. Going back 50 years or so, we actually have doctors, and I have a couple of ads here, would recommend cigarettes. This many physicians choose Luckies or smoke a fresh cigarette because camels are really the preferred cigarette from doctors. Now, you can take a lot of lessons from this. One, don't always trust the experts. But two, just because something is culturally normal doesn't mean it's good. Because smoking was normal because it wasn't seen as a threat. Think back 25 years. You walk into a restaurant, the hostess greets you, and what's the first thing they'd ask? Besides the party number, Smoking or non-smoking? Back in the 80s and into the 90s, you could smoke on airplanes. And I clearly remember a cartoon camel trying to get me to smoke as a child. And now how much things have changed because you can't, not only can you not really advertise tobacco products normally, and there's all kinds of rules and regulations around it, It's gone so far that 50 years ago, doctors were recommending it. They would advertise it to kids. And now there's a strong push for if there's any smoking in a film to immediately make it rated R. Now, if you smoke cigarettes, I'm not here to harass you about it. This is a very useful prop because as a society, we took this as normal for a long time. And then we said, maybe we shouldn't encourage kids to smoke. And how we train our kids is really important. In Mishlei, Proverbs 22, 6, train a child according to his way. Even when he grows old, he will not turn away from it. And Rashi comments on that. However it is you train him is how he's going to turn out. If you train him poorly, he's going to turn into a bad person. If you train him well, he's going to continue that into adulthood as well. What you do now with your kids echoes for the rest of their lives. So how do we go about training kids? And I'm here to talk about something very, very specific today. How do we go about training our kids and what's appropriate and not appropriate? And our foundation always, 100% of the time, is scripture and God's word. And Rav Shul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy, all scripture is inspired by God and beneficial for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully capable, equipped for every 
good work. That is where we start in raising our kids. And the master Yeshua himself said, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depths of the sea. So I'm here to tell everyone, not all harm comes from direct harm. Many of the sins that we commit are sins of omission because we were afraid to act we were afraid to take a stand on something and we decided to sit back like we're watching a YouTube video or something on TikTok. So instead of acting, instead of properly training, we stand back. And it's no wonder that we've done this for a couple of generations now so people will drown in a pond while onlookers just watch because they didn't want to risk getting involved. And it's easy for us to do this with our kids, to not train them, or even worse, we train them in the wrong ways. So we'll send the message of, make sure you're doing the right things to look good, but don't actually go to the trouble of teaching them how to do these things on their own so they are internally good people. I'll use an example. Imagine you have two battalions of infantry soldiers. A battalion's about a 1,000 people. Battalion number one, if you were public schooled, you'll recognize this. They're teaching them to the test. What's on the test? Push-ups, pull-ups, run. Can you shoot in a prone position, in a kneeling position, in a standing position, and hit the target from 50 yards, 100 yards? Teach to whatever the specific test is and no more. Battalion two. Real-world training, regular real-world training, both day operations and night operations, regular, difficult, arduous physical training. One group is going to look really good on paper. They're going to look fantastic on paper. The second group, the higher-ups are going to ask, why do you have so many injuries? Your guys are really stressed. Battalion 1 over here, they're getting really good scores. What's going on with your guys? Well, we're training these guys because we actually need soldiers, not parade soldiers. And a lot of the time, we end up with parade soldiers. So out of the first battalion who's being taught to the test to do push-ups, sit-ups, pull-ups, run, and to shoot from just a couple different positions versus the second group that's doing real-world training, live fire scenarios, room clearing, which one would you want to actually fight in a war? The second one, if you want to win. Many parents are teaching to the test. And whether you like it or not, you're raising a soldier. You don't get a choice in that. You do get to choose which kind of soldier. Chad. Mark 3.27, no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first ties up the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. I'm here to talk about something very specific today that we are very much bound in. <laughs> we are distinctly bound, and as parents, thank you, Chad, we're tied. <laughs> 
Yes, it's a real zip tie. It's definitely on there. We're bound. And what am I talking about today? And I'm gonna talk about something that's gonna hit home for a lot of people. If you've had an experience with this, I'm very sorry, because believe it or not, I actually didn't wanna talk about this. I'm here to talk about child predators. Why do I say we're bound? How do I know the strong man is bound? Because the numbers don't lie. Because in our society, one in four girls and one in six boys is molested before the age of 16. And not only is that number appalling, but that kind of trauma increases the chances of every physical sickness you can have along with mental illness. This problem doesn't care if you are wealthy or poor. It doesn't care about your skin color. It doesn't care what congregation you go to. It doesn't care what your nationality is. It is a problem across the board with very little difference in any of these indicators. There was a doctoral student. She was doing her PhD and part of her her doctoral thesis was studying people who had been molested as kids. And she wrote, you might wonder, why, where would I find such a broad group of people to sample and talk to about this? Who would be willing to open up and tell their story all in one place? Easy. Psychiatric wards, because they're full of them. There are more survivals, survivors of child sexual abuse in America than there are smokers hand over fist. I'm here to offer a couple of things that are incredibly useful in this that can very much unbind the strong man. And they're not complicated. And if anyone wants to know how to do that, it's a very simple thing to do. I taught the youth group how to do it a few years ago. So you can figure it out. This is not a comprehensive discussion of the subject. I cut away slides practically with a machete to get this down to a drosh length. It is also at times very emotionally charged. And I'm here to tell you, if you have this kind of a trauma in your past and you have not dealt with it, please do it. I am not a psychologist, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a therapist. If you have trauma and you have not dealt with it, please deal with it or it will deal with you. So what is one of the first things we have to establish what are some conditions for child abuse to even occur. And every time you see child abuse, we're specifically talking about sexual abuse in these cases. The first one is the abuser has to first have the desire in the first place. That desire often comes from a feeling of weakness, that the person feels out of place. They might be some kind of a psychopath. They're not able to form healthy relationships with adults, so they turn to children. But it's not just desire, really, it's imagination. There are a lot of times that our desire and our imagination are disconnected. I'll give an example. If you ask husbands and wives, married people, get a hundred of them and say, how many of you want a healthy, strong marriage? Everyone's probably gonna say yes. It's a good desire. How many of those people in their imaginations are faithful? How many entertain adulterous thoughts? As about 25, 30% of marriages encounter some form of adultery at some point, 
not everyone can say that because we will entertain things in our imaginations but we're stating something else with our desires. And I will tell you right now, when your desire and your imagination do not line up, your imagination will win over time. That is why the Amidah prayer is concluded with Psalm 19. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. May the things I speak and what I feel truly in the deepest part of my innermost being be acceptable before you. Literally in Hebrew, lefanecha, before your face. And that brings us to number two. The abuser has to overcome inhibitions. As in, they have to somehow rationalize. And it's at this point, a number of professionals in this field point out, you are not dealing with a rational person. You will think that, well, as a father, I could use a threat of violence as a deterrent. I've got two daughters. And when they hit their teenage years and there's such a thing as boyfriends, that might be a helpful thing. For now, not so much. When you're dealing with this kind of a person, violence is not a deterrent because you're not dealing with a rational person. You're dealing with someone more akin to a drug addict. Violence, a threat of violence, is not going to stop a drug addict from getting a fix. You are often dealing with someone who is more or less a psychopath. They might be very brilliant. They might be rather dull. But they are willing to do all kinds of things to get their fix. Condition number three is the abuser has to have an opportunity. The overwhelming majority of the time, that opportunity means they need to get your child alone. A reaction over the last 10, 20 years parents have had is, okay, I'm going to teach my kids stranger danger. Strangers are dangerous. So don't be around strangers. The only problem is, best case scenario, you just did something to help 3 to 10% of the cases. Because the overwhelming majority of the time 90 to 97% of the time, it is someone who you knew and trusted. It's a family member or a close friend, someone who completely slipped under the radar. I did a lot of reading preparing for this. One of the more disturbing stories was a man who was leadership in his congregation. He headed up a Boy Scout troop, and he coached a kid's soccer team. He molested nearly a thousand boys before he was caught. Teaching stranger danger and leaving it at that does more harm than good. Because when you leave it at that, what do we end up with? Awkward adults. We have 20 year olds who are terrified to answer the door. Teaching stranger danger does our kids a disservice because it is a very incomplete picture. The fourth condition for child abuse is the abuser must have the means to negate the child's resistance. As in, most kids at some point will realize that what the abuser is doing is wrong. And the abuser is going to use something to shut the kid down, whether it's guilt, whether it's shame, whether it's blackmail, any number of things. Very rarely, very rarely is physical force used here. 
Parents are ultimately the first line of defense, but parents cannot be the only line of defense. We're going to go through two rules we're going to talk about. Before I do, it is important that we raise strong adults because your kids, my kids, are not going to be kids forever. They're going to grow up one day. So what kind of a adult do you want to raise? You need to instill confidence in your children because one of the first things predators will zoom in on is the kid with bad posture, afraid to make eye contact, afraid to engage in conversation, terrified, hiding behind their parents constantly. That's not a big deal when they're three. When they're 10, that's a problem. They will look for signs of weakness, a kid who lacks any kind of self-esteem. And when I say self-esteem, I don't mean the good job trophies you get because your team lost. I mean the self-esteem that comes from doing difficult things and having accomplishments and achievements. Another big thing they look for is if the kid has a bad or good relationship with parents. That man who abused nearly a thousand boys, the therapist that got through to him and got him to open up and talk about how he did what he did, and she asked, what was the biggest tool you would use to figure out which boys you'd go after? He said, I looked for the ones that really wanted me to listen to them. If you're not listening to your kids, you have no idea what you're opening yourself up to because there's someone else eventually who will. With that, the first rule, naivety is not a virtue. Remember, you're raising a soldier. Your job is to make sure they're effective. Raising your kids with naivety is doing them an extreme disservice. Now, full sex head for five-year-olds is clearly grooming, especially when it's being done by people who try to keep the parents out of the room. This is the space for parents to work in. By the age 15, you should know what's going on. In Proverbs, Michelet 14, the naive believes everything, but the sensible person considers his steps. And then in verse 18, the naive inherit foolishness, but the sensible are crowned with knowledge. Raising kids with naivety is a very bad idea, and it is destined to failure because they will believe anything, and they are easily manipulated. Naivety is not a virtue, and a way we address that is shelter kids from without only when they're young. And there's this concept of sheltering from without versus sheltering from within. Sheltering from without is when my three-year-old sees a fire and she runs up to it, I don't give her the opportunity to stick her hand into the fire or with a hot stove. You train your kids that a stove is hot and there's different ways you can do that, but you don't let a baby or a toddler come up and stick their hand on a hot stove. By the time your kid is, say, 10 years old, they should understand that the stove is hot and they're not going to touch it because you've taught them that lesson and you don't have to helicopter parent them constantly. You've sheltered from within at that point. You don't have to constantly be there to tell them what to do. 
It is very easy in a society where we are so heavily monitored to slip into sheltering from without all of the time. Because then we can point to our kids and say, look how wonderful they are. Because you're not really being a parent, you're a handler at that point. 1 Corinthians 13, 11, Rav Shul writes, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Remember, as parents, we're raising adults. I remember asking my mom, because they gave me a lot of freedom. I asked her, you kind of just gave me a lot of freedom when I roughly turned 16. And she goes, well, yeah, I was public schooled for one. And she told me, you had off-campus lunch and you had a car. So if I couldn't, I knew I had a deadline. If I couldn't trust you to make reasonably wise choices the majority of the time by the time you hit 16 we were out of time what were we going to do handcuff you in your room she's my mom i got my sense of humor from her your parents presence and parents your presence cannot equal your kids good behavior it cannot be the driving force You have to train your kids things that are okay and things that are not okay, and that over time, they will understand what to do on their own. Because the overwhelming majority of these child predators rely on the kids having no idea and being completely naive. An example of the presence of someone producing the good behavior, we'll take a look at the story of Joash. In 2 Chronicles, it spans three chapters, chapters 22 through 24. Joash, most of his family was killed by either Jehu or Ataliah, who usurped the throne and promptly killed almost his entire family. Joash was hidden away and raised in the temple. I had a children's book of, of Joash when I was a kid, and it was fun to read because it showed him playing with a ball in the temple, and I never really thought they probably didn't have rubber balls back then, but... And the children's books usually don't tell the whole story because his story ends very darkly. He took the throne by age seven, and it says, and Joash did what was proper in the eyes of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. And that last part there, all the days of Jehoiada the priest, because he had a priest raising him. But after the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them. And they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. So wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for the guilt of theirs. Joash walked away from God after Jehoiada's death, and he openly endorsed idolatry. And then when Jehoiada's son, Zechariah, Zechariah, spoke against idol worship, Joash had him killed in the temple courtyard. His mentor's son, He owed his life to Jehoiada, and he had his son killed for this. Joash became extremely sick, and he ended up dying after Jerusalem was sacked, diseased, and he was murdered by his own servants. Jehoiada was buried with the kings, and Joash was not. As soon as Joash lost Jehoiada, his behavior went south. 
Joash was clearly sheltered from without. The idea of raising children that end up that way terrifies me as a father. Because my parents know they won't always be around, and I'm blessed to have uh, believing parents, messianic parents, and, and so does my wife. We're, we're very blessed with that. that you know, we can get together and have Hanukkah parties, and we can do things like you know, Sukkot together and Passover. We easily go into being handlers as parents, and we forget it's our job to train. We have to equip kids with character, real character that gets tested. And the thing about tests is sometimes you fail. I want to say it was one of the World War II generals who said, I'll clean it up. Life is tricky because it gives you the test first and the lesson later. And that is what life does. You have to equip your kids to live life in a real world, not a bubble you're able to create for them. Because when it comes to things like child predators, so many kids are naive because you're able to create a bubble in the city where if you were just living on a farm, they would know more about the birds and the bees than they do in an isolated environment. There's an article Diane shared with me years ago by Michael Pearl. Now, when someone raises a large family of kids who all turn out strong believers, I take notice. When all of those kids marry believers and then all of their kids are strong believers, I take notice. Because they're clearly doing something in their family culture that is exceedingly good. And think about it, how many families do you know that have three kids or more where they all turned out great? Michael Pearl writes in an article talking about sheltering from within versus without. Character cannot be created. It comes out of choice. Character does not develop in a moral vacuum. One does not learn to be good by never being allowed to do evil. Character is the end result of many moral contests. One must face moral dilemmas with no limitations or constraints on his freedom and choose between the naked realities of good and evil in order to develop character. Further, one must choose good in circumstances that are hostile to his choice. Finally, if he is to have lasting character, he must make the hard choice of doing the right thing in the situations where his body and soul cry out for the pleasure that will come with an unlawful choice. We have to train our kids to have character. As they get older, if you are not letting them enter situations that are a little risky, a little dangerous, you are raising parade soldiers. Protecting only on the outside is less effective over time. When your kid is three, four, five, that looks very different on the tests you will put them through compared to 13, 14, 15. Because I've encountered a lot of teenagers and even early 20s who have no idea who they are. When it comes to dealing with 
pedophiles and training your kids against child predators, these, these conversations are ultimately very simple, but it's extremely important that you have them. Your kids understanding things like swimsuit zones and that they're not allowed to touch other people in certain places and the same goes for them. These are incredibly simple things to have and you might say, well, of course my kids know this. Well, everyone's doesn't, obviously, because if they did, the numbers wouldn't be what they are. One in four girls, one in six boys. If this was so common knowledge, it would not be a complete epidemic that we all sit back and casually ignore. Kids understanding basic things like not changing clothes or exposing yourself in front of others. As an adult, if you just do that in the middle of a parking lot, you tend to get arrested. It's a good thing to remind kids of. These are simple things to do. Have these conversations with your kids. Look up other conversations to have. Rule number two, kids are never allowed to keep secrets from their parents. We are specifically dealing with minors who are under their parents' roofs. So if you're 28 and living in your parents' basement, not technically talking about you, secrets become very expensive. And when a lot of pedophiles are asked about how they did what they did, one of the biggest gauges they would use is, can I get this kid to keep a secret? It might look something like using a swear word in front of a kid and then go say a bad word and say, oh, don't tell your parents I said that. We might not be able to hang out if they knew I said that word. And if you really believe the kid would keep the secret, ah, got one. This is a very direct point. You have to respect the boundaries of family. And it is never okay to expect a child to keep any kind of a secret from their parent. In Devarim 19, you shall not displace your neighbor's boundary marker. The Torah is very specific about boundaries. Respect the ones other families put up and never expect a child to work against their parents or to withhold information from them. Even if you do it thinking, I don't have nefarious intent, you're programming them that it's okay. Another example in Torah, you don't have the legal authority to ask a child to keep a secret, to ask a child to make a vow. In Bamid Bar, Numbers 30, it talks about a woman makes a vow to the Lord and it discusses that she's in her father's house in her youth and if her father hears of it, the day he hears it, that he can essentially annul it and the Lord will forgive her because her father hindered her. Rashi comments, this is not discussing adults nor even minors as the vows of all minors are invalid. Train your kids that if someone tells them, ooh, keep this a secret, don't tell your parents about it, that is the exact language that tells them they need to tell their parents immediately. Because keeping a swear word a secret turns into, oh, your parents don't let you have this kind of candy. They don't let you have this treat. They don't let you watch this kind of film. It slowly escalates over time. And that frog gets slowly boiled. As the child has 
on their conscience a laundry list of things they know they're not allowed to do. And then they get to a point where they're being asked to do something they distinctly don't want to do because they started keeping small secrets. And that is nothing a 10-year-old boy or girl ever needs on their conscience. Teach kids the difference between secrets and surprises. Secrets are burdens that will eventually come at a very steep cost. Surprises are fun and generally bring blessing. For example, I put together a surprise party for my wife's birthday this last year. My kids actually had no idea because they're horrible at keeping secrets. (laughs) So I just didn't tell them. And it felt like I was running some kind of crazy intelligence operation to get everything coordinated and not even my kids could be in the loop. Teach the difference between a surprise and a secret. That's a really important thing. Surprises are something that's gonna come out eventually and it's gonna be a blessing and everyone's gonna be happy about it. Secrets will make you feel heavy because the candy and the soda and the swear word will eventually turn into alcohol and drugs and pornography. And once the kid says, I'm not comfortable with that, usually once sexual contact begins, that's when shame and manipulation come into play. Because now that predator has a laundry list of kids, of that kid's uh, things they've done that's on their conscience. And so then, what do they say? I'll tell your parents. Ooh. And so then the kid will find a way to rationalize and go along with it. And you think, that's insane. My child would never do that. Again, the numbers say you're wrong. Because I know several people who that exact scenario happened to them. Psalm 119, remove my disgrace, which I feared, for your judgments are good. In the commentaries, forgive me that sin with Bathsheba, and my enemies will no longer be able to disgrace me with it. Shame is a powerful thing. And stepping outside of just child predators for a moment, don't ever let someone use guilt or shame to control you. Don't ever do it. If it's something you've let happen in the past, then decide that that's done. Someone brings up, well, you did this before this time. Well, that was then. Think you're gonna make me feel guilty. It's not gonna work. Train your kids that they always have an open door with you. Even if they've already done something they know was wrong, never, ever let them think, the worst thing I could do is tell my parents. Once they realize they're in trouble, their first thought absolutely has to be, I've got to go talk to my parents right now. The more I read about this, the more I realized as a society we have these ideas, and whether it's because we have a religious idea or it's a cultural idea or both, that having good toy soldier kids that look fantastic in teenage years, but once they're put to the test, whether it's in college or work or anywhere else, they completely fall apart and are ineffective. And we have this idea that it's okay for our kids to look great in their teen years 
and become horrible in their 20s. Don't do it. Have the hard conversations now. Give them opportunities to fail now because they will either learn these lessons at 15 or at 25. When do you think it's safer? You do get to choose that. I had a female cousin of mine join the military. So I, my uncle, who I'm very close with, said, would you please have a conversation, <laughs> a conversation with her about what to expect? Okay. Now, she is a corn-fed, raised on a little farm in the middle of nowhere. So having a conversation with my 18-year-old little cousin about how you're about to enter an environment where 99% of the guys are going to try to sleep with you. That was an interesting conversation to have, but a very important one. I guarantee you it was uncomfortable. But I know for a fact, and she's told me, it saved her a lot of trouble because she walked into it with both eyes open. And she was not naive on what to expect. You're raising soldiers. We all are. If you're a parent, you are raising soldiers. You get to choose how you're going to train them. As a father of three, it is imperative that we do this well. That the cookie cutter toy soldier thing has to stop because these numbers are absolutely insane. We see it as a society and it's almost brushed off like it's a conspiracy theory. Would the music team please come up? Rav Shul writes in Ephesians chapter six, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of, the, of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Ultimately, this is a spiritual war. You are not going to win it because you happen to outsmart someone. And in this kind of a conflict, you're not going to win it because you got guns and artillery and anything else. You're not gonna win it through physical intimidation. You're going to win it by God showing you the things you need to do. You're going to win it by following his word. You're going to win it by raising up your children in the way they should go and not leaving it up to chance and rolling the dice and casting lots on how they're going to turn out. Would you please stand? our Father in heaven. Lord, as you are one with your son, I ask that you would make us parents one with our children, that our hearts would be connected to theirs. Lord, I ask that you would give us the wisdom to impart the lessons that we need to impart, that you would show us how to be the parents that you need us to be, because the struggles and the battles that our children have to fight are not the ones that we had to fight and not the ones that our parents had to fight. Lord, you know what they are going to encounter. You know 
the struggles the generation, this generation is going to have. Lord, I ask that you would use us as parents to equip them for every good work, that they would be men and women of righteousness, that they would be daughters of Zion, that they would be men of God. Lord, I ask that you would make us one with our children in spirit, that you would put your truth on our lips. We thank you so much for these souls that you have entrusted to us. Lord, I ask that you would influence the desires of anyone who has struggles, anyone who has trauma, and that you through your spirit would deal with it, that you would lead them to have the difficult conversations. Lord, if there is someone who has trauma, I ask that you would lead them to have it dealt with. If there's someone who has troubles with their heart, I ask that you would lead them to the right place, to the right people, to have the right conversation. Lord, you know exactly what they need because you are the perfect physician. We look to you with hope and we look to you with an earnest expectation. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for it is you who are God and our King and our perfect Father in heaven. Amen. Shabbat shalom.